A note to our listeners before we get started. This podcast contains offensive and violent content. Please be advised. Previously on Verified. We're not going to, you know, bend our knee to anybody. You know, like if they're going to call us Nazis, it's like, sure, you know, we'll be Nazis for the day if you want. But like, what are you going to do about it? You know, and they're going to do nothing. Like, I, I feel very angry at these people. I want to understand what makes them tick. I would say that the fact that it's so personal, that it's like literally directed at me and my family and people I know and love make the stakes very high. A Kerrville man accused of plotting a mass shooting is now behind bars. The FBI and Kerr County deputies arrested 28-year-old Coleman Blevins. Officials searching his home said they found firearms and what they describe as radical ideology paraphernalia. It was a very close call. Law enforcement stopped Coleman Blevins on May 28, 2021. We were in the middle of making this podcast when we heard about it. Officials seized a military-style AR-15 assault rifle in Coleman Blevins' truck. It was loaded with enough ammunition to kill lots of people. His plan, they say, is to shoot up a Walmart. The local sheriff was shocked. You know, we're out here in the hill country, very beautiful, very nice, very quiet normally. You know, this just goes to show, you know, you never know when something like this can happen. One of our undercover guys was able to uh, make contact with him through social media. You know, he was going to die for the cause and kill some people at Walmart. Luckily, an undercover agent had made contact with Blevins online and found out about the plan before he was able to hurt anyone. When law enforcement entered his home to arrest him, they didn't just discover weapons. A photograph the police took from what they found in Blevins' home revealed Blevins had a wide variety of racist and extremist material from around the world. What we see here is a pretty well-curated mix of items from neo-Nazism, white supremacy, and fascist movements. This is Heidi Beirich, who studies hate groups. So, for example, a Confederate battle flag, which, uh, you know, represents the Old South and, and the defense of slavery. We have a Nazi swastika and a black sun. We also have um, something from uh, fascist Spain, a phalangist flag. Blevins is someone collecting ideas and symbols from groups thousands of miles away and who was arrested for wanting to commit an act of terror right here in the U.S. This is the kind of threat, a lone actor radicalized into extremist beliefs who decides he's going to act on them and go shoot and kill people that are opposed to him. There are human beings bonding across borders. They're creating a white tribe. In this show, we've learned that many countries have their own homegrown, racially motivated extremists, from Spain to Sweden to Russia to the U.S. The effort to counter them goes far beyond the borders of any one country. These individuals and groups are no longer just domestic problems. They're international. Mark, where, where, where are you going right now? So I am uh, walking to the headquarters of the 
U.S. Department of State. We are about to walk in to uh, talk to some of the top counterterrorism officials in the United States. Uh, I'm told that this is the only uh, interview that the State Department's Counterterrorism Bureau uh, has given like this. It's the State Department's job to watch for terror threats abroad before they make their way to U.S. soil. And that's where we're going for answers. I'm Natasha Del Toro, and this is Verified, the next threat. We've been digging into white supremacy, talking to a terrorist, and unpacking a globally connected network since the day after the January 6th insurrection. And now, Mark is taking everything that we've learned so far to the U.S. State Department. Natasha, the team here partners with the FBI and the CIA, but it's the State Department that has the lead when it comes to designating terrorists. And the people here don't sit down all that often with reporters at all. This is, in fact, the first time they've ever given a podcast interview. Irfan Saeed is one of the top officials here trying to stop the terrorists. Now, that doesn't mean he's running around like Jack Bauer from that TV show 24, taking out terrorists. Irfan's a sharply dressed former prosecutor who has certain tools that he can use and others that he says he cannot. I mean, I watched like 24, you know, with Kiefer Sutherland. (laughs) What do you do every day? Uh, I've never seen 24, uh, so, but I can tell you that uh, it's, it's, you know, diplomacy is what we do here. And our job is to work with people around the world to ensure that, um, you know, terrorist groups can't operate. Terrorist groups don't have safe havens. And individuals who are potentially drawn to terrorism, we put in those circuit breakers so they can't finish that loop of actually becoming a terrorist. This is a, a threat to the United States. It's a, it's a strong threat to the United States. Uh, But from the State Department's perspective, we're at the water's edge out. And so for us, we're looking at how racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists are metastasizing around the world. And we are definitely seeing an absolute uptick on that. What is the State Department's role in this space? Our role is to look at the transnational linkages to how REMV actors are, again, mobilizing, recruiting, inspiring others to violence. Our job is to ensure that If things are happening around the world, if there's mobilization, recruitment, inspiration happening around the world, that's where the State Department has our our mandate. Why did you get in? You know, being a uh, sort of an immigrant's uh, son in this country after 9-11 and seeing how uh, certain immigrants were being treated uh, after 9-11, it really sort of pushed you into um, this life of wanting to do something more, give something back uh, to the United States. and, And that's what I chose to do very early on. So that was 2001, as the U.S. worried about Osama bin Laden's next strike. Twenty years later, a lot's changed. The threat of an attack isn't coming from any one leader or one group, but from racially motivated violent extremists, or REMVs. Now, intelligence agencies worry that it would be REMVs who would carry out the next mass casualty attack in America. Many countries have their own homegrown REMVs. So where are the hotspots? So as we, as we pulsed a lot of our embassies around the world, uh, there were places like uh, Scandinavia and Germany and, of course, in the U.K., where there was um, sort of this increased uptick. We've seen a global in- uptick, but there's an increased uptick in places like Scandinavia. Um, why? We have to do a better job of understanding that. This is a, a nascent 
uh, uh, movement for us to try to get a better understanding of how these groups are connected, how they're operating, how they're recruiting. And I think for now, we, we still have a, lo- a little bit of a ways to go. What needs to happen mm-hmm. from here to get us to a place where we're no longer in, in the nascent stage? Right. In the United States, we've had um, you know the events that happened on January 6th. There's a lot of different countries around the world that haven't had that, that, uh, that mobilizing event yet. So they haven't really had the need to share the information more broadly than their state and local law enforcement. They're seeing this as something that's popping up in their own neighborhood, and they will um, address it the way they see fit. But what they don't understand is that that local threat could have links from around the world. And this is the thing that we have to make them understand is that that local threat isn't always just so local. The room that we're in is surrounded by hallways that are packed with secret meeting rooms. They're called skiffs, the kind of rooms that are designed to stop America's enemies from listening in. But now I'm the one sharing information from a designated terrorist, Stanislav Vorobiev. He's the leader of the Russian imperial movement. Now, now we've heard Stanislav talk about his plans right here in this series to unite the world's white nationalists for a full-on global holy war. It's information that's so new that people here hadn't even heard it yet. Like I said early on, we have to do a better job of, of understanding the adversary and part of his learning from journalists and learning from think tanks. You know, And so all of this information is very helpful to us. And it is a concern to the United States. It's a concern to the State Department. It's something that we're always looking at. Whether or not we can act upon it is a different story, but it's always going to be of concerns for us. This is what we do. I was surprised to hear Irfan tell me that the team here might not be able to act. The people that we're talking to who like the idea of a new crusade, they're building alliances with outright enemies of the United States. They're meeting with other organizations that have been designated as terrorists by the U.S. and other countries, um, and they are uh, engaging with nations, uh, nation states, even like Iran, uh, and that feels like it's taking it up a notch here. Yeah, and I think when you talk about how Ramvi actors have learned, this is what they've learned. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko, Al-Shabaab, they lived in the shadows. They committed crimes. They plotted attacks. The Ramvi actors are, are like, we're, we're out in the open. We're right here. Uh, we're going to be standing for parliament. We're going to, you know, get uh, jobs in government. And, and we're going to do everything we can to ensure that you see us and you see our narrative. Are they necessarily pushing that narrative towards violence? Not necessarily. And that's where, again, we have to draw that line with what we can and cannot do. There's still freedom of speech. There's still freedom of expression. And although some might find it abhorrent, uh, they are protected under this Constitution uh, to say certain things and that we just can't counter. It gets harder every group. It gets harder every year because when we have one one level of success, they're trying to uh, understand, learn, and then counter us. What he's saying here is really important. The the white nationalists are evolving. They're forming political organizations and parties to gain members who are attracted to these ideas. And that and that includes groups that we've talked about right here in this podcast, like Democracia Nacional and La Falange in Spain, the Nordic resistance movement in Scandinavia, and even the ultra far right Alliance for Peace and Freedom. So that's an interesting sort of uh, uh, take on a, a lot of these REMV actors. They're getting much more involved in the political process. Uh, and it's just something we have to, we have to track more closely. Does it, is it harder to counter, though? 
it's always harder to counter something that's uh, that's sort of always out in the open, right? And they have certain protections in place. Uh, we just need to be careful on how we're engaging. If you listen really closely, it's almost like you can hear how far the pendulum has swung since the scandals of the post-9-11 days, when the American government essentially threw out civil liberties, started warrantless wiretaps, and even detained suspects without charging them. I mean, they did whatever it took back in the day to stop threats. Today, the Counterterrorism Bureau of the State Department is talking about how careful it needs to be, about politics, about freedoms. And they're wrestling with big questions like where do you draw that line between concern and action? I mean, that's a big challenge for countering these new groups. Extremists today don't operate like groups in the past. It's harder to uncover and dismantle plots. Sometimes it's harder to distinguish extremist activity from protected free speech. And it's even harder to balance all these needs in an international arena. For instance, what can you do about paramilitary training camps in Russia that are open to extremists from everywhere? Uh, I was invited to come for $500 a week I would have to pay. I'm not about to pay him. Yeah. I understand that would be a federal crime and right. in a lot of trouble. <laughs> you guys wouldn't let me out of the building. Uh, you know, but... Uh, but, but the point is, is anyone can come, uh, but the, the paramilitary training camps are still open today, uh, where people can go get guns training, explosives training. Um, and, um, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, is, is, the, is the United States, is the world doing enough right now to stop these kinds of things? Look, I think from, from the you know, State Department's perspective, our job is to ensure that we do everything we can so that training camps don't exist, safe havens don't exist, and the ability to perpetuate a violent extremist narrative that push people towards terrorism doesn't exist and doesn't target U.S., U.S. interests, U.S. allies. Uh, it's, it's a never-ending battle. This is a really hard part. I mean, it's, it's clear that they are really worried about the training camps, but... It's also hard to nail down exactly what they'll do to shut them down. Irfan won't go into specifics with me, but he does want me to know about one tool his team is using a lot right now. It's diplomacy, not with other countries, but with social media companies. If it's illegal content, terrorist content, or it's content that violates their terms of service, we bring it to their attention, and then they will take uh, the, the necessary action. We do not force companies to take down content. Maybe the biggest stick the State Department has, it's the one that we've heard so much about, designating someone or a group as terrorists. It's not just a label. The designation allows assets to be frozen and people who pose a real threat to be blocked from traveling to the U.S. And American citizens, they can face criminal prosecution if they support a designated terrorist. But since 9-11, the State Department has used this special power only one time against a white supremacist group, while they've designated a whole long list of Islamist groups. Hillary Bacher Johnson oversees the designations team. People who have left uh, this bureau, mm -hmm. who I've spoken to, have described it as um, when you are trying to designate someone as a terrorist, they've described this as very, very red tapey and frustrating <laughs> and slow. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, designating an individual or a group, we should take very, very seriously. We want to use this tool appropriately. We want to make sure that we are just, we are designating who we should be designating and that we use that tool in a way that's actually going to have a maximum effect in the sense of either trying to course and change behavior or limit their resources or their ability to travel. The um, FBI has very recently said um, that uh, the top domestic terrorism threat in America are these racially motivated or or ethnically motivated violent extremists. So if that's true by all of essentially the intelligence infrastructure of, of the United States from what they've said out loud, mm-hmm. um, I have to say that I, I, I'm, I'm having a disconnect with why it's only Islamist organizations. If this is the top threat to the United States, why is there that disconnect there? So I don't want it to seem like it's the only tool that we can deploy. But unlike ISIS or Al Qaeda, these groups and these individuals are very diffuse. They're spread out. And that makes it very hard for designation purposes to be able to actually go after groups and individuals. We have to tie an activity, a terrorist activity to a group and its command and control of that group. I'm just trying to figure out um, if this is such a big threat and my family, to, to my family, yours, you know, all like, it's, I'm just wondering, like, what's the solution? How do we, how do we fight this? So we look at um, watch listing, we look at screening, we look at exchanging border security tools so that we're all more uh, safe uh, from preventing people from not only traveling, but entering our own countries and keeping our citizens safe. Okay, so those are the tools that the State Department's currently using. But what more should be done to stop global groups who are trying to inspire American white supremacists? Will the State Department use its big stick and go after others who are violent? That's coming up after the break. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Intelligence agencies are really worried about the growing transnational connections between white supremacists and how ideas that start overseas get shared online and inspire people right here in America to attack. One of the biggest global amplifiers of hate is a group in Scandinavia, the Nordic Resistance Movement. They have a prolific podcast with more than 200 episodes in English that target English-speaking audiences. Welcome to Radio Nordfront. This will be our 35th episode. And this one podcast helps to spread ideas for many of the people that you've heard about throughout this series, like the Russian imperial movement. And with us tonight is Nikolai from St. Petersburg. He's active in the Russian imperial movement. He's around 30 years old. We say welcome to you, Nikolai. Yeah, welcome you too. Thank you for... And another guest on the podcast was Matt Heimbach, the American white nationalist that we've heard from. To the listeners who are in 
the Nordic Resistance Movement and are supporters of the Nordic Resistance Movement, you need to understand what level of inspiration you provide, that you are on the front lines fighting the struggle and we're fighting the same enemy on the same barricades. And And in May 2021, the Nordic resistance movement even allowed an American white supremacist who was in Europe and on the run from the FBI to go on their podcast. His name is Rob Rundo, and he was encouraging other white supremacists to learn from him. I didn't I never planned on being like a a Jason Bourne character traveling throughout uh, the world running from the the FBI and stuff. So I I never really had such a good plan B. So anyone that's listening should always have a very good plan B. I actually met some guys from Nordic resistance movement when I was in uh, Bulgaria. I think it's perfect, perfect cue for Hillary. We spoke a little bit about the Nordic resistance movement. Some of them flew off to Russia in St. Petersburg, trained with the Russian imperial movement, came back to Sweden, and they were convicted yeah. of taking bombs and, and, and placing them in refugee centers. And so they aren't just hateful speech people. I mean, they love, they love the Holocaust and they love Hitler. Uh, if you listen to their podcasts, it's really vile stuff. But 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 members that members of that organization have done done things and not just the bombings. How are they still out there undesignated? Well, I'm not going to comment about a specific group or entity or individuals because we don't discuss what we're deliberating or potential deliberations of of designations. So we often hear from journalists and others, we're seeing these connections, we're seeing these conversations, we're seeing these networks, and we welcome as much information as possible. Uh, But we have to make that legal criteria and meet that in order to be able to do a designation. And I understand you got to be careful with a reporter walking into the office saying, hey, look, you know, I got this information. I would want it vetted, too, before you take an action. I would I would expect you to vet that. But the Nordic resistance movement, Irfan brought it up uh, when he was sitting here. He brought up something I wanted to ask you about, which is that actually they were named in 2018 and the. In, 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 in the counter-terrorist strategy of the United States. You've read it. I know you've read it. I read it, yes. You've, you've, I'm sure. Long time ago, though, too. <laughs> you know, every day. I was know, um, write it right, every day. I mean, then it, I stopped reading it after a while. And this is what stood out to me when I was looking at this. I mean, it just it, it jumped off the page. This isn't the reporter writing this. Right. This is the United States government's strategy here on this stuff. And then they say there's also a broad range of revolutionary nationalist and separatist movements overseas whose use of violence and intent to destabilize societies often puts American lives at risk. For example, the Nordic resistance movement is a prominent transnational self-described nationalist socialist organization with anti-Western views that has conducted violent attacks against Muslims, left-wing groups, and others. The group has demonstrated against the United States government actions it perceives are supportive of Israel and has the potential to extend its targeting to United States interests. How does the Nordic resistance movement on page nine of the National Strategy for Counterterrorism labeled as a terrorist adversary? And I'm just what is the red tape that's there that's like that that they could that one hand of the U.S. government can call them a terrorist. And yet the group that can actually take their money away and stop them and actually do something about it, it hasn't hasn't yet. That's that's what I'm trying to get to the to, to the core of. 
So we're assessing every one of these groups that are out there, the REMV actors that we keep exchanging information with our foreign partners on. When we work with the FBI, with DHS, we're looking at these groups for any ability to designate them. And we are very aggressive in trying to use our designation authorities. Just as we were about to wrap things up, she said something really surprising, and it made my ears perk up. No, I mean, it's hard. Well, designations, I'm here to yeah. <laughs> I, I've got a great designations team, and their frustration level just uh, is general. Is, you know, there's, they would love to be able to deploy this tool everywhere, and, and we just don't have the resources and the staff and the information. They don't have the resources and the staff and the information that they need? I mean, that, that seems like a really big deal. And hearing that, it makes me, Natasha, think that it's time to reach out one last time to Heidi Byrick of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Are we recording? We're recording. Oh, on this We're side, we are. waiting for Heidi. Hey, sorry. There hey you there. Are. Hi. I'm really glad that we could uh, get you on the call because there's some things that we're trying to really pin down. And, you know, as we've done throughout this whole series, whenever we can't figure something out, um, something we've heard, we're like, let's call Heidi. <laughs> she, she'll make sense of it. And so, you know, Mark was just at the State Department. I was left scratching my head in one moment of, of our interview when I was talking to this high level official who told me that she has a wonderful team, but that they do not have the information the staffing or the resources to do all the designations that they that, that, that they would like. And this is after January 6th. You're shaking your head, Heidi. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I just think it's an outrage. Nobody in the federal government should be saying the reason that we can't take on terrorism is because we don't have the staffing or we don't have the resources, especially with an administration that says it's committed to addressing this issue, right, to taking action on this issue. Could you imagine after 9-11 if the government had said several months later, I'm sorry, we don't have the resources or the staffing to address Islamic extremism that just killed 3,000 plus of our people? It, it would be a complete and utter outrage. There's no excuse for that. So if you need resources and you need to hire people, do it. They should have been doing it a while ago. You know, frankly, I would have thought with the Biden administration and its new strategy plan um, to combat both, you know, REMV's racially voted, motivated violent extremists and anti-government extremists, that they would be using every tool in their toolkit, at least outside of the United States. I mean, they have no problem going after Islamic extremist groups, labeling them as some kind of terrorist designation, and then applying the toolkit, which they have, which is much more extensive. All of that could be happening with groups who are essentially headquartered outside of the United States. If those organizations were designated as terrorists, why would that matter or what kind of an impact would that have right here in America for, for people that are here that might become a threat? Yeah, it would cripple their functioning, right? It would, it would disclose if they're engaged in activities that are illegal, like money laundering, for example, whatever might be affiliated. Are they using their resources to purchase weapons, for example? And then they would be able to cripple their activities by bringing charges against people abroad that are affiliated or Americans that are doing something that they would discover through this process. When it comes to understanding 
why that's happening or how uh, the uh, interconnected nature of white supremacy is is really bubbling up in in those regions. Um, they they they're still in what they they call a nascent stage. I, I mean, I just the whole idea that they're at a nascent stage, I don't understand. It's like, what is holding you up? What is stopping you from getting the expertise that you need? How long is it going to take you to get to a medium stage and a full stage, you know, to tackle this problem? It just there's not really time to waste here. Well, this is exactly why we turn to you, <laughs> because you help make everything much more understandable. And I just want to thank you so much for going on this whole journey with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. You take care. satisfying at the end of this whole story and and not have like a better grasp on solutions. I think that's, you know, that's pretty frustrating for me. Well, here's the thing. I don't think there should be the end. I think this is the beginning, certainly of what needs to be a much larger conversation. And, you know, look, for me, I, I think back on when this all began, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It started here in your house, actually, in your basement. In my basement, right. I remember. You know, and Kick, there... You were kicking boxes in your basement. Kicking boxes um, uh, because you were asking to sort of delve into some areas of my life that I, I have not really faced uh, and sort of didn't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it was, you know, the, the, sort of the documentation in my basement of my my family's history, the history with uh, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, there was that awesome document that sort of was had all that Russian on it that showed how my mom's side of the family, my great-granddad, had to flee Russian oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the truth is I still have that document downstairs in the basement in that same old wooden chest, and, and I just, I, I don't think it should be there anymore. I think... I think it should be out in the open mm-hmm. and, and it should be something that people see and and want to talk about. Yeah. So that the history doesn't continue to repeat itself. I'd like to go down there. I think I want to go down there right now and get it. Go get it. All right. Oh, wow. What is this? I brought a bunch of stuff. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this is what I showed you at the beginning oh, yeah. of all this. Yes, um, yes. Remember that? I sure do. It says in Russians, Cyrillic, they only wanted him to live where the where the Jews were allowed to live in the area. And remind me the date here. It says here in his own handwriting that he came to America in 1889 at 23 years old. <laughs> so this is this and this is how he sort of got out. Uh the truth is, I've kept it in the basement until this moment, and and it's just, I'm done with it, you know? I mean, like, it's clear to me that people need to be talking about what's going on uh, in the world of white supremacy. We have met someone who is labeled as a terrorist in today's modern-day society who wants to bring about the same kind of 
of society that 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 that, that my great granddad ran away from. I, I'm going to put this in a frame. We're going to put it up uh, in in the house because I want people to talk about this. I want people. I want my friends. I want my neighbors to come over for oh, you're dinner. Gonna, you're going to actually frame this right I'm, now. I'm gonna, <laughs> okay. I mean, I look. I mean, this journey of this podcast is, has made me face things that I uh, haven't just wanted to face to talk about uh, because of the the darkness of it all. And truly, it's like this is a good tangible way of. You know, framing, framing this document, putting it on the wall, and and everything that it means to you. Um, you know, I think where I want to put this is in what what I call what we call the innovation room in our house. It's where we have guitars. It's where we make music and art in in our house, um, and sort sort of try to try to bring out beautiful things actually to the world. like to put it right above the piano that sort of came into my possession through my great granddad's family. You know, once he got here to America, he ended up raising children who loved piano. Mm-hmm. Seems like a good place to put it. Okay. Um, I've got my tools. Let's give it a go. Maybe you can help. I better center this up right or my wife's going to be mad at me. You need to measure. What do you think? Right about here is the center of the piano? What do you think? Um, yeah, that's... That seems about right. It's pretty good, right? Go from the C note up. <laughs> Looks nice. It's pretty, pretty centered. So... After all of this, um, all of these months of reporting into far-right extremism, how, how do you feel then when you look at this document now? It, it, it seems to me what this document here is for me is a reminder that these hateful ideas have been around, but that they do evolve. We know they evolve because we've come face to face with the modern day people who are continuing to, to spread the ideas by becoming globally interconnected in a way that did not happen before. Mm-hmm. And and so this is a reminder to me of the longevity of these ideas and that we, we can't, just because we don't like them or it's uncomfortable to talk about, certainly for me, doesn't mean we can ignore them. I hope, Natasha, I hope that as we as we come to this end of the podcast, that this is simply a chapter marker in a conversation that will launch and that we will we will continue to have and 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 no longer hide from The next threat is reported by me Natasha Del Toro Mark Greenblatt, Sean Powers, 
Lauren Knapp, and Reen Alias, with additional reporting from me, Bingren. Thanks to all our translators for their assistance. Sean Powers is our senior producer. Our editors are Suzanne Reber and Ellen Weiss. Allison Leighton Brown composed our theme and original music. Engineering and sound design by Bruce Edwards. Verified was created by our executive producer, Suzanne Reber. The show is produced by the Scripps Washington Bureau. There's so much more for you to discover about this story and what's coming up on the show. You can find us on Twitter at Verpod. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you just search for Verified Pod. And if you have a story to tell us, send a voicemail or an email to verified at scripts.com. That's verified at S-C-R-I-P-P-S dot com. If you like the show and believe in this kind of storytelling, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people discover Verified. I'm your host, Natasha Del Toro. This is Verified. Thanks for listening.